Good morning. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps. And I told you we're going to start a series in Revelation, but today we're going to look in Matthew 25. So take your Bible or your app and turn to Matthew 25. I'm going to get my table here. Uh, I'm going to put a graphic on the screen that kind of gives you some instructions on how to find the book of Matthew. Uh, so if you're not sure how to find it, maybe you've brought your Bible or you grabbed a Bible out of the pew uh, and you're not sure how to go about finding the book of Matthew, just look up on the screen. There's step-by-step instructions. Or if you're in the Bible app, uh, we're in the Bible app as well, and you can just pull up your Bible app and we've got our sermon notes there in the Bible app and you can follow along with us there. Uh, But Matthew 25 is going to be our passage that we focus on this morning. Now, let me ask you a question. Anybody recognize one of these? You don't see them as often as you used to, do you? For our teenagers, this is called a newspaper, <laughs> right? Now, I grew up in a home. Uh, my grandparents always got the Sunday newspaper. And so we would get up in the morning and we would fight. Us cousins would stay the night together and we would fight over who got to read the comics. You like that? Comics are my favorite part of the newspaper. I mean, you've got the front page and you've got the sports section uh, and you've got local news and then you've got the classifieds and all of that. Uh, The crossword. I was never all that interested in the crossword. But the comics, they were colorful, right? And they had such fun lessons in them. Some of them were just humorous for humor's sake. But let me ask you a question. Those of you who have read the comics in your newspaper before, does, do the comics tell the truth? Let me ask you, as you read the comics, sometimes the tr- comics hold more truth about what the world is doing around us than the front page does, doesn't it? But it tells that truth in a little bit of a different way. It's graphic, it's colorful, adds a little humor, makes makes that truth a, a little easier to digest, right? So I want us to think about the newspaper this morning. You see, if you go back to our sermon series back in July and August, we had this sermon series about how to read the Bible. Um, And one of the things that I talked about in that series is that, first off, this is not a book. This is a library. It's got 66 separate books inside of it. And uh, I don't know if you remember if you were around, but I brought out, uh, if you look at your Bible, you know, the pages are, are tissue paper thin, right? So if you were to go and buy a Bible that was printed on regular book paper, the Bible would be a collection of books about this wide, it's a series. It's a, uh, like you, you go and buy a, a series of books that, that follow the same storyline like Lord of the Rings or, or something like that. That's kind of what this Bible's like. It's huge in reality. And it's a collection of books that are quite large. Now, one of the things we talked about was that this library of books that are in our Bible, this library contains all kinds of literature. It has poetry. It's got stories, you know, narratives. 
It's got history, you know, retelling of uh, history and what happened. It's got romance, Song of Solomon. It's got wisdom, the book of Proverbs. It's got all of these different types of literature. But one of them is very unique from the rest of the types of literature. It's called apocalyptic literature. Now, I want you to imagine that Revelation is an apocalyptic type of literature, and Revelation is like the comics section of your newspaper. It tells the truth, but it does so in a completely unique way. It uses imagery, symbolism, mysteries, all this kind of cool stuff, but it's no less truth-telling than the rest of the books of the Bible. It's just really hard to understand sometimes. And, and so we're going to go through the book of Revelation over the next several weeks. Uh, and so today, I want to give you an introduction. Because Revelation, if any book needs an introduction, it's the book of Revelation. Uh, there are a lot of things that I want you to understand about the book in, uh, in large as a whole before we dive into the text itself. Uh, and so let me give you some background here. I want to tell you first off about John. John is the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, John was one of Jesus' closest followers. If you go and read uh, the first four books of the New Testament, they're called the Gospels. They're, they are the biographies of Jesus, basically. They, they tell his life story, his teachings. They tell about his death and his resurrection, now, if you go and read those Gospels, you're going to find that Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had three that he was very, very close with. Peter, James, and John. Now, John is that, the guy who wrote Revelation is that third guy of those three that were really close to Jesus. And John was one of the apostles that, that lived the longest, from what we can tell in history. All of the apostles died a martyr's death. And there's debate about how John finally died. But John lived to a very old age. Now history, according to the early church fathers, the guys who came after the apostles and led the church for the first like 300 years, those guys record that John got, he, he, he got arrested by the Roman government and, and because he, they convicted him uh, of trying to place Jesus as king over Caesar, which was treasonous. It was the death penalty. And so they, the history tells us that John was condemned to death and his death sentence was he was placed in a vat of boiling oil. Now, history tells us, the church fathers say, that he was put in that vat and when he came out, he had no signs of pain or, or, or damage from that punishment. Either way, he survived that punishment. And the Roman uh, uh, government had a law that stated you couldn't be killed twice by the government. And so they tried to kill John once. They couldn't try again. So what were they going to do with this guy that was trying to put a different king on the throne other than Caesar? Well, the only thing left to do is to exile him. Let's put him in a place that's remote where he can't cause trouble for us anymore. So they sent John to the island of Patmos. I want to put a, a graphic on the screen, a map for you. 
Now, this is uh, the, the Greek world that John wrote in Revelation 2. Now, if you look in the very middle, kind of down, there's a black dot. And if you can't read that, that black dot is Patmos. Now, Patmos is the island that John was exiled to. The Roman government got sick of him. They couldn't kill him again. So, they exiled him to this tiny island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is interesting. I've always been taught that there was no one there and it was desolate and it was basically barren and, and he was all alone. That's actually not true. Patmos was actually a garrison stronghold. It was an island that was strategically placed in front of one of the biggest ports in that section of the world. Now, if you look at that orange section on the map, that's modern-day Turkey. So if you imagine in your mind a map of like the Mediterranean, that's where we're at. Turkey sits on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. You with me so far? Just next to Turkey is the country of Greece. So if you know where Greece is at, just go east and there's Turkey. So Patmos was this little island that was actually pretty strategic uh, from a naval standpoint to protect this huge harbor in front of the city of Ephesus. Now, I'll talk about Ephesus uh, pretty extensively over uh, here in a couple weeks. But uh, Ephesus was this huge port. And the Roman government wanted to protect it from people invading it by ship. And so they put this big army garrison and military outpost on the island of Patmos. And because there was a military installation there, people moved to that island. Now, don't get me wrong. There's not a lot of people living on Patmos, but there are people there. There was actually a pretty good-sized temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the idol goddess Aphrodite. And today, on the, the foundation of that old temple is a monastery to John now. It's one of John's uh, monastic uh, strongholds. And so Patmos was barren, but it wasn't uninhabited. There were lots of people going in and out all the time. There was an army installation, and there were people that lived there. Um, now, now I want to turn your attention to those seven uh, dots, those seven map markers on uh, the, the nation of Turkey right there. This is what is known as the seven churches of Revelation. We're going to get into chapters two and three, and we're going to read about these letters that are written to these seven churches. So John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he's receiving a direct message from Jesus. We'll talk about this next week. He receives a direct message from Jesus, and Jesus directs a message to each of these seven churches. Now, number one is Ephesus. Ephesus, as I mentioned, was a major port city. And then there was a massive trade road that went up from Ephesus and followed the numbers that you see on that map. I know it kind of seems like a long way around, but it made sense in the world at that day and age. There's a mountain range that kind of cuts through there, and this was one of the easiest routes if you were hauling cargo. So there's this massive trade route, and there are major churches in all seven of these cities. Now, 
when we get to chapters 2 and 3, we're going to hear from Jesus about what he says these churches are doing really well and what they need to work on. Uh, And some examples, uh, Jesus really kind of comes down hard on these seven churches for their complacency. They're comfortable, they're they're just kind of living life, but they're not living life in their faith all that much. Uh, He kind of comes down on them for disobedience, but he comes down on them consistently for idolatry and, and idolic compromise. Now, let me give you some some reference to the Roman world in this day and age. Every single one of these cities had major idol temples in them. Some of them uh, to Roman or Greek gods. And almost all of them had temples to the emperors, the Caesars. You see, back in John's day... If one, you, were, you had a Caesar, the king, the, the emperor of Rome, uh, of the Roman Empire, and when that Caesar would pass away, when that emperor would pass away, he would be deified. They would, they would glorify him to the status of a god. And if you wanted to have favor for your business or, or whatever, you would go to the temple of Caesar. You can act, if you want more information on this, just go Google the imperial cult. Uh, there's tons of information on the web about this. But if you wanted your business to prosper, if you wanted favor, you would go to the temple of the emperor and you would give a sacrifice. And here's the hard part. I'll expound on this here in a couple weeks. But as a business owner, uh, and everybody owned, owned a business in this day and age, that was kind of how things worked. You, you, most people owned a business, or if you were lower income, kind of lower on the socioeconomic scale, you worked for someone, uh, but it was a different kind of a relationship than what we think about with employer and employees today. But you would go, and your, uh, all of the people that were in your career field, they would a few times a year, they would go and offer a sacrifice at one of these temples. And you were expected to attend the sacrifice. And then after they sacrificed whatever it is that they sacrificed, they would then take that animal and go to a location near the temple and eat a meal of that sacrifice. They would eat it all together They thought that that brought blessing to their business. And if you didn't participate, you were ostracized within that field. So let's say that you were a masoner, that you worked with stone, which was huge construction element back in this day and age. Let's say all of the stone builders got together and said, hey, uh, on February 5th, we're going to go over to the temple and we're going to sacrifice and then we're going to eat the sacrifice together so that we can get the blessings from this God so that we can continue our business. If you said no, all of the other stonemasons in the city would ostracize you and would keep you from getting business. Your business would go under. So, you know, today we have Google reviews and we have companies like Angie's List and things like that where if you're looking for a good uh, window repair guy or plumber or whatever, you can go online and you can go and read reviews. In this day and age, the reviews came from your participation in these what they called guilds. So if you didn't participate in the sacrifice, 
you got a zero rating and no one would do business with you. So think about that for a second. When someone became a believer in Jesus in this world, your entire business, your livelihood would get put on the line. So it's no surprise that many of these people would compromise their faith and say, I'm gonna gonna live out my life for Jesus, but I'm gonna go to the temple and sacrifice because if I don't, I can't feed my family or put a roof over their head. And so persecution looked a little different than what we think of when we think persecution. You know, we see lawsuits in our Supreme Court today where a baker won't cook a cake for this or that or a, man, a person won't build a website for this particular lifestyle. And we scream persecution, but imagine if you were in a society, in a culture where if you accepted Jesus, you would be completely removed from being able to do business. I mean, we, we live in a society that even if this person doesn't make a cake for this particular thing and they go to court, they may lose some business, but the Christians in their world may still bring them business. That wasn't as easy as it was in this day and age. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to be building on this, though, in the coming weeks because I want you to have an idea of what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in this day and age that John is writing to so that we can kind of understand what God expects of us today. So let me move on. Revelation, again, if Revelation, comparing our Bible to a newspaper, if Revelation is like the comics section, then we have to understand a few things about Revelation in order to understand it. If I sit down with the comics section and I read some comic and it's making some kind of political commentary, it's not going to do so just outright, is it? It's going to do so by putting symbols in and, and making fun of something, but in reality making fun of this other thing over here, right? Revelation is the same way. Revelation is confusing because we don't understand some of the background of the book of Revelation. So here's the question. If Revelation is like the comics section of the Bible, what do we need to know in order to understand Revelation? Well, the first thing that we need to know is we need to know the rest of the Bible. Put that next one up there. You see, John, the writer of Revelation, uses the rest of the Bible in Revelation. He quotes the rest of the Bible extensively. Let me give you some numbers here for just a second. There are 404 verses in Revelation. You with me? So if you read the whole book of Revelation, you're going to read 404 verses. 278 of those verses, so well over half, have some kind of reference to the Old Testament in them. Do you know that? John quotes, in the book of Revelation, John quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. For comparison, Paul, in all of Paul's letters, he only quotes the Old Testament 200 times. John does it in one book 278 times. So if you took all of the other books of the New Testament, Matthew through Jude, the book right before Revelation, you took all the rest of the New Testament... 
Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than all those other New Testament books combined. So he references the Old Testament a lot. He references Genesis, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Zephaniah. He references the Gospels. He references 2 Thessalonians. He uses the rest of the Bible extensively. And if you want to understand what John is saying in Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament because he points to it so often. Just like the comics kind of work around ideas by pointing to things through graphics, John is pointing through to biblical truths by pointing back to the Old Testament. So you cannot understand the meaning of Revelation without understanding John's usage of the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Revelation 1 verse 13. Revelation 1 verse 13. I'll put it on the screen. It says, I saw one like a son of man. Now what is that reference? That is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 where Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man. He is directly quoting the book of Daniel. Now, in order to understand what John is saying in Revelation 1 here, you have to go back and read Daniel chapter 7. Because if you go back and read Daniel chapter 7, you read about the throne room of God and God sitting on the throne, but there is a throne next to God that's empty at his right hand. And and Daniel looks around and he says, behold, I saw one like the son, like a son of man. And he goes on to explain how this son of man will save the world. So who is he referencing? Jesus. But you won't get the reference in Revelation unless you go and understand Daniel 7. So, First thing that we need to understand in order to, to, to understand Revelation is we need to know the rest of the Bible. The second thing is we need to know about the Roman culture back in this day and age. Okay, so John is writing to seven churches that have mixed audiences. This, these churches have Jewish people who live in Roman cities, but he's also got a few Roman Greek people who have converted accepted Jesus as their savior. And so he makes a lot of Greek and Roman references that today as modern Americans, we don't fully understand. But as a Greek or a Roman, when you heard a statement that John would make, your mind would automatically start putting the puzzle pieces together. Let me give you an example. I'm gonna put on the screen Romans 1 verse 16, or Revelation 1 16. So Revelation 1.16 says, in his right hand, it's talking about Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, as an American, what does seven stars mean to a westernized American? Absolutely nothing. There's no meaning behind this. But I want to show you a, a coin uh, up on the screen. So this coin is the coin of Emperor Domitian, which actually was the emperor during the time when John wrote Revelation. And I want you to notice the back side of the coin that's on your right. It's got Domitian as an infant being held up on a throne, which is the earth, basically saying that 
Domitian's throne is the earth itself trying to convey his power. And then look at, I don't know if you can see it, but there are seven stars around the outside of Domitian. You see, the Romans and Greeks had this symbolism of seven stars. And the seven stars, anytime you saw seven stars on a coin or on a relief on a wall or uh, you know, etched into uh, a doorpost, every time you saw a reference to seven stars, it was referencing that whoever was holding those seven stars controlled the universe. Domitian right here in this coin, he's being demonstrated, he's being illustrated as someone who literally is sitting on the earth as his throne because he controls all things. And he's holding seven stars showing that he controls the entire universe. So when John says in Revelation 1.16, he holds the seven stars in his right hand, what is John telling his readers? That Jesus controls the entire universe. Don't believe the emperor holds the seven stars. Jesus is the one that holds the seven stars. So in order to understand the book of Revelation, we've got to have a little bit of understanding about the Roman world and its symbolism because John uses it a lot. Now, I will unpack this as we go through the book of Revelation. I'll point you to those Old Testament references and I'll point you to these Greek-Roman references so that you can better understand what John is conveying and what his hearers would have immediately understood. So, what do we need to know in order to understand the book of Revelation? We need to know, we need to understand, have a working knowledge of the rest of the Bible. We need to have an understanding, know and understand Roman and Greek cultures. And thirdly, we, know, we need to know that Revelation is built in a unique style. Again, go back to this idea of the comics. Is there any section in the newspaper that's like the comics? No. It's completely unique. Some of what is conveyed in the comics isn't even conveyed by words, is it? It's conveyed by images. And Revelation is the same. Revelation is filled with symbolism. There are symbols all throughout. Things that aren't real, like aren't literal, they're symbols of something. So let me give you some examples. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, John describes a living, these living creatures that are full of eyes, that have six wings, and have the appearance of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Now, Old Testament reference, he's pointing to Isaiah 6. If you go read Isaiah 6, that's where Isaiah has a vision of going into the temple of God. And he sees the seraphim around the throne and they're worshiping God. And it's described as the seraphim having six wings with eyes covering the inside of their wings. And they cover uh, their feet with one set and they cover their eyes with the other set. And with the third set, they fly pretty weird imagery right I don't know about you but I can't even imagine wings with eyes on them let alone six wings and covering their feet and their eyes and them it's weird why because it's symbolism it's symbolizing something chapter 5 
In chapter 5, which is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 5, John mourns because he looks and there's no one to open the seals of this scroll that's been presented to him. And then one of the elders, it describes these elders around the throne of God, and one of the elders comes down and says, John, hold on, guess what? There is one that's worthy to break the seals. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Again, Old Testament reference. Go back to 1 Samuel. Go back to Genesis 48. There are multiple references to the lion of the, lion of the tribe of Judah. But this elder says, look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says that John looked up and behold, he saw one like a lamb who had been slain. How can a lion be a lamb that was slain? How can those two things mix and be the same? It's because it's all symbolism. And again, it's Old Testament referenced symbolism. And there are tons of things like that. There's horses with heads of lions. Uh, there's, uh, you know, lions that breathe out fire and smoke and brimstone, but their tails are like serpents. There are locusts which look like horses uh, and have crowns on their heads and many faces. I mean, the symbolism in the book of Revelation is wild and crazy, but all the symbolism has meaning. And we'll, we'll unpack these meanings, but let me tell you something. When you sit down with the book of Revelation... You have to interpret it. You have to break down its meaning differently than you would break down like the Gospels, which plainly states Jesus went here and he said this. Okay, that's very literal. Almost nothing in Revelation is literal. So when you read Revelation, you have to take everything and interpret it through its symbolism, not literally. And here's one of my main complaints about us as Americans We've gotten really good, especially with the book of Revelation, we've gotten really good at saying, I'm going to interpret this symbolically, but not this. You can't do that. You can't say, well, I can't imagine this, so I'm going to interpret that symbolically because it's a little weird. But this is a little easier to understand, so I'm going to interpret that literally. You don't get to dictate What's interpreted literally or symbolically, the writer of the book and God himself decides that. And since Revelation is almost completely symbolic, we have to interpret it in light of that. And so there are some things that are taken literal, but we have to be cautious. Uh, the, the scholarly viewpoint on this is interpret everything symbolically unless you're forced to interpret it literally. And so that's one of the things that we have to understand. What's some other symbols? Numbers. There are fours, sevens, tens, and twelves all throughout the book of Revelation. And each of those numbers have a meaning. And so when you see a four or a multiple of four, a seven or a multiple of seven, a ten or a multiple of ten, a twelve or a multiple of twelve, that number every single time will have a deeper meaning to it. Because that's how the Romans and the Jewish people understood numbers back in that day and age. So, we must understand that Revelation is going to be a little harder to understand versus something that just gives us a laid out history, a narrative of something. So, let me move on. 
So where are we going with this series? Well, our theme verse for this series is the verse that I mentioned earlier when uh, we were uh, in our prayer time. It's Revelation 21.4 and it says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, the point of all apocalyptic literature in the Bible, there are other apocalyptic books other than just Revelation. But the point of all of these books is to point us to hope. So that's my big idea today. My big idea is this. Revelation points us to hope. When you sit down and you read the book of Revelation, too many of us sit down trying to calculate the future. That's not the point of Revelation. Revelation's point is to show us that however God plays out the future, it's for our good. Because it's the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Revelation over and over and over points us to the fact, again, Jesus holding the seven stars in his hands. God controls everything. So because he holds everything, we have hope for what's going on in the world around us right now. The world around us is imploding, it seems like, right? I mean, we read the news. You probably sit down and read the news and you just shake your head. And you go, God, what's going on? Revelation says he has it in his control. And he has a purpose and a plan for it. We can have hope in that. We can have hope in suffering. Guys, Revelation is going to talk a lot about the suffering of God's people, of the church. But every single time it references the suffering of God's people, it talks about the hope of life in Jesus. So in our suffering, we can have hope. And ultimately, going back to what we tend to do with Revelation, if God's in control of everything, that means we can have hope for the future. Because he holds the seven stars in his right hand. He is in control and he brings us hope. That's the purpose. That's the point of Revelation. So what's our final takeaway? I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. This may be a familiar passage to you. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to say one quick thing and we'll close. Jesus in Matthew 24 has predicted some of the things that are going to happen in the end times. This is where Jesus talks about uh, somebody will, two people will be working in a field and one of them will be taken and, you know, things like that. And look at what he says in chapter 25. He gives us a parable. It says this, chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So imagine, picture in your mind, this big wedding ceremony that takes several days. One of the things that would happen is the bridegroom would approach the wedding ceremony location and there would be virgins with lamps awaiting his arrival to announce that the bridegroom has arrived. So these 10 virgins are waiting. Verse two, five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Verse 9, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy the oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the time nor the, hour, the day nor the hour. Guys, here's the point. I've known a lot of people that were really obsessed with the book of Revelation. They would, every Bible study they would go to had to be about Revelation. And they would spend hours and hours every day on the internet researching timelines and theories about how the end times were going to happen. And... Let me make an anecdotal observation. So many of those people that were obsessed with Revelation because they did not know what God said in the rest of his book, this library, they weren't great followers of Christ. Many of them were very mean, very hateful. Many of them did not serve because they were spending all their time studying Revelation. They were not equipping the body of Christ as Ephesians 4 commands us to. They weren't part of the body. They weren't doing anything for the body of Christ. They weren't loving their neighbor. They weren't uh, living for Jesus in any way that could be seen. Jesus makes it clear, guys. We're not going to know. We can't calculate out when Jesus is coming back. God the Father alone knows that day and time. So we need to be like the wise virgins, the five wise ones. They weren't as concerned about calculating when the bridegroom was going to come. Their concern was about being ready when he did come. What does Revelation, what's the point here? It's to give us hope so that we can live for Jesus now. If you're obsessed with the book of Revelation, you study it a lot, but you're not loving your neighbor, you've missed the point of Revelation. If you're not serving the body of Christ, you've missed the point of revelation. If you're not telling people about Jesus, if you're not a light in darkness like these wise five virgins were, why do you think Jesus used the illustration of a lamp? They were lighting the way for the one to come. If you're not lighting the way for Jesus, you're missing the point of revelation. We're going to study Revelation in depth for many, many weeks. And it's going to be fun. You'll enjoy it with me, I hope. But please hear me. I'm going to unpack some of the theories. I'm going to unpack, you know, well, this this could mean this or this could mean that. But guys, the point of this is not to understand the future. The point of this is to show people the hope of Jesus. Let me tell you right now, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior you can have the hope that I've been talking about this morning. 
God has the future planned out. He has it prepared, and He has a plan for you, and that plan is a message, a plan of hope. But you have to believe in Jesus to have that hope. You have to believe in Jesus and commit your life to Him and follow Him in order to have the hope that's spoken of throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus loves you so much that He died for you. He gave His life so that you could have the hope that we're talking about today. And let me just say, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you want to know more about this hope, maybe you've got questions, I want you to reach out to us. My name's Chad. I'll be out in the foyer. Um, Alan, can you be up here at the front? One of our elders, Alan, will be up here at the front during the closing song. Come forward, pray if you need to, or if you've got questions about Jesus, come talk to Alan or come talk to me out in the foyer. Or grab a Connect card, fill it out, and I'll call you this week. I would love to talk to you about the hope of Jesus. Because that's the point of the book of Revelation. It's not about predicting the future. The, the book of Revelation is about pointing us to the hope that Jesus controls everything. And in that control, we have hope as his followers. I'm excited for this series. I really am. I'm going to get to nerd out again like I did back in July and August. So I hope you enjoy that as well. But keep in mind that Revelation points us to live for him. Not to shelter in, not to, not to try and protect ourselves, but to go out into the world and bring that hope to those around us. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the hope that can only be found in you. We thank you that that hope is so clearly seen in the book of Revelation. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us to understand what it means to follow you, knowing that you're in control, that you are sovereign. You, you control the future. You control the events of this world. And even if we don't understand what's going on, we can have hope that in your very capable hands, you have a plan and a purpose. Help us to show people that hope. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.